everybody, and welcome to the Game Byte Show podcast for the top of the week, September 18th, 2016. I am your host, Jeremy Lawman Lamont, and I'm joined by my two co-hosts, Dale Count Elmdor-Jones. Hey, Dale. Hey, what's up? And Jared Redai Dunn. How's it going, Jared? Hello, hello. We're good. We are here to kick off the start of your week in video games by talking to you about the news of the gaming week. We're going to talk about the new releases that are coming out. Uh, or have come out, and uh, we're going to talk about a special video game topic of discussion as we do twice a week on the Game Bite Show. Uh, we do it in succinct little Game Bites. We are certain to do this in 30 minutes or less, as we always do. And you know what? I think we're going to get right to it. We're going to start out by just leaping straight into the news headfirst, uh, just like the sign says not to do, uh, head trauma be damned. We are going to start out with the Tokyo Game Show. I don't know if you guys are aware of this, it kind of passed by me, but the Tokyo Game Show happened this past week, and uh, it seems like not a lot of announcements came out of the Tokyo Game Show. I'm kind of curious, did either of you guys hear anything that piqued your interest out of TGS this year? Nah, I don't I don't think so. I saw some people tweeting weird photos of, like, I don't know, but no. I don't care about Res, and that seems like maybe the only thing that was there. <laughs> That was like the one game. Well, actually, it was a big hit this year again as far as attendance was concerned. Uh, for basically every consecutive year, the game has increased in uh, attendance. Uh, this year, about 271,000 visitors attended, according to the CESA, which uh, I guess runs that event. And there were mostly uh, video demonstrations and hands-on and, and that sort of thing from TGS. Uh, a few things leapt out at me from the event. We'll just kind of run through those really quickly. First of all, uh, in last week's show, we sort of had a brief mention of the new Valkyria Chronicles game, Azure Revolution. I uh, was looking forward to that one, but it kind of came out at TGS from uh, hands-on and from video that the game is actually a Musou game. Uh, oh wow! Yeah, <laughs> I guess it sort of alternates between being a, a you know fairly competent strategy game, as the series always has been, and then just turning into straight up Muso. Which you know, I haven't played one since Dynasty Warriors two, the the first Muso game, basically. I, I remember that we uh, actually, in fact, on uh, one of our shows back this past summer, I think it was, or maybe it was even last year. I don't even remember when it was. Uh, we uh, I did a uh, Samurai Warriors game on the Vita, and I think I said at the time that I, I'm good for a Muso game about once every four years. <laughs> um, so I might I might have to wait on Valkyria Chronicles. Uh, VR was a big deal at uh, TGS also, as Dale mentioned. Res uh, Infinite, is that the name of the I think that's was? right, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but uh, also a few other games like Summer Lesson, which uh, is sort of a you undertake the tutelage of a, a young anime girl um and i don't know if it's technically supposed to be like an eroge sort of game but it's you know i think it's just another people it's another sort of thing that panders to those very socially awkward people that um have trouble you know obtaining companionship and that might be, but, you know, I did actually hear some people talk about some hands-on with this, and, and they said some interesting things about VR, which is just the scale of VR. And I heard this when they talked about a few different games, but they, it came up with this, too. Um, usually in video games, you don't really have a sense of space kind of in that same way. And they said that even, you know, even if it's not totally, you know, a titillating type game, uh, just being in a space with this one other character, and, and they said everything is very well modeled and, you know, and uh, has, uh, you know, a very professional look to it. And they said that that really kind of changes the the countenance of the game, which I, I found that kind of interesting. The whole the whole presence um, yeah. argument thing. Yeah, exactly, which I am kind of curious to try that out. And, you know, we are within the next 30 days going to be seeing uh, the release of PlayStation VR here in the United States. So uh, I don't know. This uh, so far is uh, only set to be coming out on uh, uh, 
actually in fact it's only coming out in japan as far as i know so we, we may not ever really see it here in any meaningful sense but uh you know a one-on-one kind of i don't know even seaman like what if they brought back seaman and you could have like a one-on-one session with <laughs> no thanks yeah no all I'll, right i'll take uh, the uh, school girl <laughs> Uh, so Arc System Works and Toybox, the developers, are creating a game called Birthdays The Beginning, which I think there was an embargo on until just this past week, which is sort of a world simulation game, kind of in the sense that, uh, I guess like Spore, I guess, where you sort of go through the history of, of the Earth and, and kind of develop new I think I saw a screenshot of this, and it looked kind of like Minecrafty a little bit. Yeah, there's kind of a, I think, a world building element to it, and, and I think I even heard people say that there's kind of a um, populace where you sort of raise and lower the land and kind of set the environment and then animals sort of rise out of the, the waters or whatever. So. That sounds kind of neat. That sounds, I wonder if it's a distant, distant cousin of uh, EVO, the search for Eden sort of thing. Kind of, yeah, which we which we had talked about before. I guess the end game in this is uh, allowing human life to, uh, to, to be created. So yeah. uh, basically, uh, you know, the, the creation versus evolution, I don't know how that's going to work out. but maybe. And this can... is by the people that are behind Harvest Moon, is that right? That's correct. Yep. So former former Harvest Moon. In fact, I think the actual creator of Harvest Moon is involved in this. So uh, looks to be pretty interesting. That one is coming out in January in Japan, and it will be coming to North America in early 2017. Birthdays. So that's that. a that's a weird choice for a title. Not, it is. not bad. A, maybe I don't know. It's just weird. Just kind of strange. Maybe it's a translation Birthdays. thing. Uh, new Hot Shots Golf, not much to say about that, but there will be a PlayStation 4 version of Hot Shots Golf coming out in Japan this summer, uh, and just various other things. You know, there are roundups of the TGS uh, offerings that you can probably find, but, you know, nothing nothing really came of it. There was a little bit that came from uh, Hideo Kojima talking about Death Stranding, and, uh, you know, they It's going to be about, co-op. Yeah, co-op, and it's going to be an open-world kind of... I don't. I don't even know what. Uh, I guess he's also sort of been trash talking a little bit the idea of zombies in the Metal Gear Survive, which we talked about <laughs> a couple weeks ago. Which I, you know, he, I think he asked something like, "What place do zombies have in Metal Gear?" But I mean, what place do vampires and robots? Well, I'll tell you, they're they're uh, mission number twenty nine, I think it was, and then again at like mission number thirty seven or something. Oh snap! I'm just looking forward to our uh, near updates, near. Out- Auto, automata <laughs> yeah from dale <laughs> yeah from dale, dale's gotta get it oh, yeah. up on that you gotta one. get that in get in that day one is that gonna be on ps3 hopefully yeah. <laughs> right <laughs> oh gosh uh minor news uh the last guardian in its game of ongoing release date chicken with final fantasy 15 to see who can release the absolute latest that they possibly can has been delayed previously was due out next month on august on october 25th is now scheduled to be released on december 6th which is one week after final fantasy 15 which itself was moved okay to so november that was gonna 29th. be my question all right. Square, you might be able to get one more delay in. You could at least give it another couple of weeks. Uh, although uh, Shuhei Yoshida, who is the president of Sony Worldwide Studios, said that this delay for The Last Guardian was actually due to uh, polish and, and bugs. In fact, he actually specifically stated that uh, uh, a delay is a difficult decision, particularly with this game, but we have encountered more bugs than anticipated while in the final stages of development. We need to take the extra time to work on those issues. Hey, I just got an idea. Uh, you know, similar to the Rotten Tomatoes challenge, we should do like a head-to-head Final Fantasy 15 versus Last Guardian. Which do you think will be received better or which, you know, which will justify its decade-long development time and, and you know, which might not sort of thing? 
Well, I think the bar has actually already been set by Duke Nukem Forever. I was gonna so... say my votes on Duke Nukem. Forever. Well, as long as they're better than these will be, these will both be better than Duke Nukem Forever. But that's not saying a whole lot. I'm sure they will. I'm sure they will. And although there is no truly objective measurement for the goodness or the betterness of a game, uh, change is happening over at Steam. Uh, Valve has issued some changes to the way Steam is tracking user reviews, uh, allowing changes for new filters, uh, but more specifically, the removal of reviews from their service based on products acquired through Steam product keys as opposed to through the Steam store itself. So, so those reviews still exist, but they no longer count towards the score that is at the top of a game. that's correct that's correct in fact they specifically say uh and i'm not sure if there's a specific representative from steam but valve uh released a statement that says that customers that receive the game from a source outside of steam for example via a giveaway site purchased from another digital or retail store or received for testing purposes from the developer will still be able to write a review of the game on steam to share their experience but these reviews will no longer contribute to the overall score uh this step is being taken to uh try to combat uh, review scores that are inflated artificially or have been incentivized or paid for by developers, which I guess is maybe a cynical way of looking at it. But the statement of Valve uh, started out by saying Steam keys have always been free for developers to give out or sell through other online or retail stores. That isn't changing. However, it is too easy for these keys to end up being used in ways that artificially inflate review scores. Uh, Valve has done an analysis that says that games acquired via product keys are more likely to get positive review scores than those purchased directly. Uh, The company acknowledges that this might be due to the enthusiasm of Kickstarter backers, uh, for example, but the abuse is otherwise, quote, clear and obvious. And um, where that's the case, Valve says that they will ban false reviews and end business relationships with developers who continue to violate the rules. Uh, Valve says that it will continue to tweak the review system according to frequently raised concerns, such as the weakness of the Mark as Helpful system, which sometimes makes poorly performing games appear more appealing. Uh, And and just in general, it's uh, kind of a pretty big change to that ecosystem of user reviews. I think we've all seen on Amazon when, you know, the the really weird reviews get upvoted as the most helpful, and, you know, sometimes it's kind of hard to tell in general. In fact, uh, you know, Dale mentioned Rotten Tomatoes uh, just a minute ago, and we kind of have this little tongue-in-cheek thing going with video game movies, but it is really interesting to see the difference between professional review scores versus user reviews and uh, as we've seen in some of the YouTube space uh, in in you know the latter days here uh, you don't always know what's going on with with those kinds of things um, so I don't know just uh, we're probably going to talk about this a little bit later on the show but just an initial impression good bad do you guys think it's a, a, a positive step that they're taking let's hold off until the the topic <laughs> yeah sure. Okay, so we'll come back to that, but we will get there by way of additional news uh, in Steam areas, because uh, the Arizona game-based developer Digital Homicide, speaking of Valve terminating business relationships, they have been effectively removed from Steam after they filed a lawsuit against 100 Steam users last week, seeking about $18 million in damages. This started as kind of a snowballing effect when they picked a fight with Jim Sterling, the independent game critic, I guess you'd call him, uh, suing him back in March for uh, about $10 million because of assault, libel, and slander, uh, which assault, assault, I guess. Yeah, assault, (laughs) I guess, is sort of a legal term, so it's not so much a physical assault, but uh, I guess assault against their brand or their their company, I guess, in Hmm. in punitive, uh, you know, 
fiscally dem demonstrable ways, I suppose. Uh, it breaks down to uh, $2.26 million in product damage, $4.3 million in emotional, reputational, financial distress, $5 million in punitive damage. Uh, originally, Digital Homicide had even gone to a crowdfunding model to get additional help to bring this lawsuit to bear, but they had taken down the crowdfunding due to harassers donating amounts specifically to cause charges rather than donations and chargebacks to uh, bring financial fees to them. Uh, the uh, co-founder of Digital Homicide, um, Robert Romine, said that uh, he had been the target of a bunch of harassment from the community, receiving things like a package full of feces in the mail, um, you know, just all sorts of things like that. And it was kind of a big mess, and uh, eventually they decided that they felt like they had to reach out through the long arm of the law to get to average people on Steam, so they've now basically been delisted. Uh, Digital Homicide says that they are defending ourselves against harassment by filing the lawsuit against Steam users where no resolution was able to be obtained from Steam to provide a safe environment for us to conduct business. Uh, they suggest that they may be considering legal action against Valve itself, um, and just generally kind of a mess. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know... I mean, when you're sitting at the board meeting or whatever, and you're deciding, like, okay, how are we going to handle this? I think the last... The, the last idea that you that you should pursue is uh, suing average people for um, these guys escalating. don't seem like they're all above board or competent maybe I yeah I, I don't know good luck with that they, they kind of have that they give you that whiff of crazy don't they yeah I guess I shouldn't say that that's that's slanderous uh, <laughs> Corrupt, uh, corruption yeah, I, I, maybe. I, I, like, I was, reading a, little, I was reading a little bit on it, and the whole thing seems, like, um, pretty overblown. Like, I know in some cases Valve or some moderators were taking down posts that were against terms of service um, by users against this company. So it's not like they did nothing, but, um, yeah, I mean, I, it's hard to fault Valve. You know, if someone comes and sues your customers, it's hard to fault you for trying to, like, protect them in a way, I guess. I, I, I don't really know. It's very strange. Which, you know, that's interesting because you, you hear a lot about the obligations of, of private people as far as, you know, they're... they're you, I mean, you sign terms of service, usually, when you sign on to a service like Steam. Uh, there's not really a lot of, of, of responsibility that you find in, in the other direction, so it is kind of neat that, uh, that Valve would choose to, you know, at least try to mitigate what's going on here because it seems like it's, it's gotten really out of hand. Uh, really pretty quickly, so I don't know something something to look forward to. I find it difficult to believe that there would really be any ruling against either Jim Sterling or you know the one hundred some odd Valve users, Steam users. Um, but I guess uh, only time will tell. And in the meantime, uh, I don't really know what uh, Digital Homicide is really planning on doing with themselves while they wait for that. Um, I think they've pretty well cut themselves off from everybody at this point. So. Uh, Cutting themselves off from the Blizzard umbilical cord is uh, Rob Pardo, who established a new studio, Bonfire Studios, to help friends connect through games, quote-unquote. Uh, the studio was brought to life uh, with Pardo in partnership with Riot Games and a venture capital outfit, Andreessen Horowitz, uh, who netted $25 million in funding. Uh, Rob Pardo says in a blog post that he didn't want Bonfire to be a studio that asks developers to choose between creating big-budget titles and personal indie experience 
experiences. He believes that they can blend the best of both worlds. Uh, also on board with the Bonfire Studios project is former Diablo 3 creative director Josh Mosquera and uh, fellow Blizzard alumnus Nick Carpenter, uh, Battle.net director Matthew Verslois, and uh, over at Nexon America CEO Min Kim. Uh, Rob Pardo says, To ensure that developers have a big impact, we are organizing them into small but powerful and diverse superhero teams like the Avengers. We believe you can create epic games with small teams of talented, self-driven game developers where each team is deeply connected to their players and empowered to make the best decisions to evolve their game without bureaucracies, committees, or middle management in their way. Uh, do you guys have any personal tie to Rob Pardo? Do you feel like the... Uh, I mean, he had been uh, the kind of the front man for World of Warcraft, I think, and, uh, you know, did, did a lot of work. Yeah, I think Blizzard. he was the... He was the... Like you said, he, he led World of Warcraft for a while. Um, less Rob Pardo, more Josh Mosquera, who was the creative director of Diablo. Importantly, he was the one who um, headed up Diablo 3 the console version, and then later the full version after, I think it was Jay Wilson left the company. Jay Wilson had been the director up until, from like launch of, and and before launch of Diablo 3 up until uh, around the time that they decided to like take out the auction house and and all that stuff. I think all of that was basically under Josh Mosquera's sort of stewarding of of the game. Um, Basically, like a lot of people would probably say that, you know, that was when the game kind of really found a groove and um, a lot of people kind of came back around to it where they might have been put off of the initial release. Yeah, interesting that you'd measure uh, that you'd mention Jay Wilson as well, because uh, the next item in the list here is also uh, a Blizzard alum, Chris Metzen, who retired from Blizzard. And and before I go on with his story, I just I feel like it's kind of interesting. It seems like over the last few months, whenever we've mentioned big names leaving a studio, it seems like it's always somebody leaving Blizzard. Um, yeah, any, any think, commentary on that? Is that well? You know, it seems like it's probably a really good time to do that, right? Because they've just released a big game in Overwatch and then another one in World of Warcraft Legion expansion. Both of them seem to have been pretty well received. And I think if you were, you know, a higher up sort of guy at at this company or a company like this, if you wanted to take your leave, that would be the time to do it, right? Like go out on top, like when your big project is done and – when it's got a good reception and everything else. Yeah, and furthermore, when your team is actually done with their work, so rather than leaving in the middle of the Plus, these guys have been there for a long time. I think Chris Metzen has been there like 22, 23 years or something yeah, like that. Yeah, so he's been there a long time. So Chris Metzen is retiring not to form his own studio or to do anything else, but in, instead to focus on his family. He says that he is actually retiring, uh, and in a blog post he says that he uses the word retire because he's not going to some other company or starting up new projects. Uh, he says it's been a long, amazing stretch of years, and he says that he'll be focusing on the one thing that matters the most in all the world, his family. Uh, uh, Metzen himself worked on Warcraft, Starcraft, and the Diablo series in various roles, including creative director, lead designer. I think uh, basically everything that, that Blizzard's sort of lore and world storytelling and all that stuff is, is, is probably in large part due to, to, to Chris Metzen's work. So, you know, take that as you will. <laughs> I'm, I'm excited to see how things might evolve and change some 
under new management. Which is always a good opportunity. I mean, obviously, these people do not the company make. Uh, they do have something to do with the culture, but uh, absolutely, it'll be interesting to see if there are any uh, directional changes in, in the studio or kind of how things are different. Because you, you do have to kind of admit that there is sort of a... Uh, a Warcraft, Diablo, Starcraft kind of vibe that really has kind of been a common thread throughout those games. Um, Overwatch, I think, is something a little bit different, and I think we've seen something a little different with uh, Peers of the Storm to some extent. And uh, who knows? It sounds like there's uh, a lot of opportunity for the folks there at Blizzard to grow and uh, to have uh, benefited from the cultivation of, of some of these leaders, and I guess we'll see what uh, what comes of that in the coming years. Yeah. Uh, in... Uh, other pruning news, it has come to light that Disney has laid off another 250 employees from its interactive media and consumer products divisions. Uh, this comes in the sort of the general trend of Disney wanting to get out of any direct development in the video game space. The uh, primary victims in this case were the team that worked on Marvel, Avengers Alliance, and other social media games. Uh, Variety reported earlier in the week that uh, lots of folks, specifically from the Bellevue Washington studio were let go. Uh, 5% of the company's digital media and consumer products team, uh, most of those laid off working on the mobile game, and uh, again, it's just in kind of in, in step with their recent uh, closures of uh, other video game-related projects. Uh, during a conference call with investors uh, earlier on, CEO Bob Iger at Disney said that the company wants to exist within the console space with their own line of product. The lack of sales and interest from consumers has caused them to rethink their strategy and approach uh, for the company's place within the video game industry. He says that uh, we thought that we had a really good opportunity to launch our own product in that space, the console space, but also the toys to life space. We did quite well with the first iteration and did okay with the second, assuming there he's talking about the toys to life, but the business model is changing and they did not have enough confidence in the business in terms of being stable enough to stay with it. Uh, Disney, in the meantime, has lost uh, about 8% of its digital interactive products and media. Uh, the profits now are at 300 57 million dollars and uh, the company told investors at the time that the loss was mostly from a decline in frozen merchandise but it seems consistent with what they've been kind of moving toward recently which is basically an entirely license-based approach and uh, i think that the marvel avengers alliance and uh, the mobile is just kind of a uh, the newest um casualty i guess of of that decision of that move in the meantime, the other end of that is news from Avalanche Software. Avalanche was the studio that was closed for Disney Infinity specifically uh, a couple of months back, and uh, news came out this week that Cast AR, which is a uh, sort of an ar uh, augmented reality tech company, which uh, actually was headed up originally by Valve uh, employee Jerry Ellsworth, uh, and they, uh, lots of members of Avalanche Software have now founded Cast AR Salt Lake City, so uh, local here to, oh, wow. to me and to Legrand. Uh, the new studio will more than double the size of Cast AR as a company, and uh, the company has more than 70 employees. Uh, actually, Avalanche at its peak had more than 100 people there, so they probably didn't pick everybody up, but a lot of those folks have kind of reformed. Uh, according to Steve Parkus, who is the president and COO of Cast AR, he says that our new Cast AR SLC team has creatively inspired talent that has delivered at the highest levels of quality. With their experience in bringing massive franchises to life through breakthrough interactive design, the addition of this team is our next bold step in launching a dynamic platform that will bring awe-inspiring mixed reality to households. Um, 
the uh, the new CEO of Castero was announced recently, Daryl Rodriguez, who was formerly president of LucasArts and CEO of Electronic Arts Los Angeles uh, just last month. So uh, from the ashes of Disney Infinity, I guess, is something that, um, you know, is sort of in the same wheelhouse, I guess, in augmented reality and uh, Toys to Life, I guess, is sort of a, a version of that, I suppose. And uh, so I don't know. I guess we kind of have both ends of the, of the uh, life cycle here, the, the closing of, uh, you know, some teams and some studios by Disney and then the, the reformation of those into something new on this end. So I don't know. It's a pretty stressful transition, I'm sure, anyway. And uh, I don't know. I guess we'll have to kind of see what Cast AR is all about here in the uh, coming months as well. We're going to start uh, leveling off the news here and uh, getting a little more lighthearted with things. Uh, I don't know if you guys are aware, but Twitch... Uh, you've heard of the Twitch Plays series of games where they do things yep. like Pokemon or... Uh... All sorts of dumb stuff. Yeah, yeah. All, all yeah. kinds of dumb things. All yep. based, they actually played Dark Souls for a little bit. It's all based on uh, chat, the people chatting. That's exactly right. And uh, the creators of Pure Chess, which is a, a game series, a chess game that's been on consoles and I think also on PC, uh, they decided to promote their newest game by pitting uh, the chat stream of Twitch against British chess grandmaster Simon Williams. Um, and uh, actually, it turns out they did all right. The first game was pretty tense, according to Williams, but he eventually won in the end. Uh, in the second game, the grandmaster was blindfolded and was able to keep all of the pieces straight in his head and still won against 500 people. But by the end of the third game against over 600 people, uh, he was not doing so hot. He said, I'm going uh, going to cry in a corner now. Where did you find these people? That he said during the uh, stream. He said, these guys are like top chess players. And uh, Twitch finally delivered the winning move and everybody said GG. Um, now, the thing about this is that, of course, there could be some, you know, th there could even be people plugging the moves into, you know, chess computer programs or games, but uh, even if those types of things were going on, they would still have to convince the entire chat to vote that way. So, um, you know, there's not really any way to, to re-extract that, but uh, ultimately kind of an interesting exercise in, um, in you know, mass competition here. You know, that entire chat was able to take on a chess grandmaster. I know that I, uh, you know, I, I can barely win against the lowest levels. I wonder if they were, like, Googling, you know, the state of the board and then, like, using, I don't know, some rule of thumb or, or computer program or something to come up with, like, the best move for that. Because when you think about it, if you... how it, It's only a little bit different from playing, like, a just a giant supercomputer, right? When you take a mass of human ingenuity and um, their access to all of each other's knowledge and then all of the knowledge out there on the internet. But then you've also got to wonder how they would communicate and coordinate that too. I mean, in, in some sense, it's almost... Through Twitch chat. <laughs> it's, yeah, right. It's right there. Well, that's, that's, that's true, but, uh, you know, I, I don't know. It just seems weird that uh, that they could come up with a coherent anything. You know, I mean, usually it's... I, I mean, did you have you watched Twitch Plays Pokemon? It's just... You know, up and down and left and left and down and up and right. And Isn't it like and... it surveys a period of time and whatever input gets the most votes? Right. Basically. Correct. So yeah. it would. Yep, exactly. So I don't know. I guess kudos to the, the hive mind, I suppose, for, for beating a chess grandmaster. Kind of, kind of an interesting little experiment, I think. Kind of and, makes you fear for our future. Yeah, that's true. And you can actually even go and find the uh, Twitch stream over at the, uh, I believe, the Pure Chess uh, Twitch channel so uh, if you're interested in that go check that out jared we should come up with something like that for our our stream i, I think we need a we need a new angle i think it's going to be Ab absolutely let's do it it's going to be crowdsourced overwatch we're going to see if we can get someone to get me a win at some point i i guess i should get overwatch yeah maybe <laughs> 
the very last item in the news is actually not new news, but it just came out over on the uh, Ultima Dragons, uh, or the Ultima Codex, uh, that uh, back in 1993, January of 1993, a customer service representative at Origin Systems, so that was the uh, you know now defunct computer game company that made games like Ultima and Wing Commander. This is, this is not EA Origin. Correct. So this predates EA. And uh, they uh, had kind of come across something from the archives uh, where a representative, Sherry Hobbs, at the time, Sherry Hobbs, who's, who's later uh, been married or has changed her name, uh, to Sherry Grainer Ray, and uh, Rebecca Height uh, discussed uh, some interesting phone calls that Sherry got that day, uh, saying that she got calls, for example, from an, enter- from an elderly gentleman who needed hints for U6, which I assume to mean Ultima 6, uh, passed, the woman, passed the phone to a woman who then said she needed a hint for Ultima 4, and then a, quote, a really old guy who said he was 93 who got on the phone wanted a hint for Wing Commander 2. Uh, and according to a quote here, them blasted neutron guns, those damn cats are getting awful high tech. Uh, which I guess is a reference to the, to the uh, Kilrathi from uh, from Wing Commander. Uh, the call turned out to be from a retirement center that had PCs with CD-ROM drives in the common recreation area. They were passing the phone around and getting hints for the game. She talked to eight people total uh, and then put her on speakerphone, and they kept saying things like, oh, I feel so silly for asking you this, but, or my mind must be going, I just don't get this. She says they were so cute, and one older gal had such a bad case of the giggles. When, when she was told that she is being bad, stealing things from NPCs, she said, well, I just don't get the chance to be bad very often anymore. <laughs> uh, so kind of kind of a cute story and came out here just recently um, and it came to the Ultima Codex by way of the Origin Museum. Uh, and like I said, not, not necessarily news, but uh, kind of a cute little story that came out uh, in the current events of the week. So that is all the news that we've got for you from this week. And uh, I think we're going to move it along to the new releases, which we get over at tech-gaming.com from Robert Desert Eagle Allen. And uh, Dale, I think you had compiled some of these. Yeah, yeah, I went through and and, uh, picked out a bunch of, cherry-picked the release list here. So, interestingly enough, Destiny, uh, you guys remember Destiny? I Um, remember it. That game is coming back around again. Um, They have a new expansion called Rise of Iron. Um, And if you like, you can buy... A package entitled Destiny the Collection uh, that has everything. Uh, and I went and double-checked this just to make sure. It's got the first release, it's got the first couple of expansions, it's got the um, the Taken King from last year, and it's got the new Rise of Iron expansion all in one pack for 60 bucks. So if you're into Destiny um, and you have a PS4 or Xbox One, because uh, they're dropping prior generation compatibility this time which is Uh, it's weird because they haven't added pc compatibility and i thought for sure that uh that would those two things would go hand in hand that is kind Um, of interesting isn't it it's it's kind of weird too that like this is just this one game like they're releasing their entire destiny in one package well i think it's kind of like like world of warcraft or something where it's they're moving basically to a model where or like guild wars right where it's guild wars 2 that is where all you do is buy the most recent rev and then you get everything right. free it keeps your player base in, in the same place so yes. n- no one will go back and buy only the original copy and then everyone's moved on to this iron rise whatever. of iron exactly yeah rise of iron content and and new players can't access it because the you know frankly the the cost is too high at that point right you buy the game for 40 maybe each expansion's 30 and, and yeah there's no way you're at 160 bucks and you're like there's oh, no boy. way they would keep 
the size, the sort of player base that they're looking to keep if they forced everyone to go out and buy every individual expansion. Um, I think it. I think it's a smart model for yeah, for particularly yeah. MMOs uh, and even just online games that really kind of require that that community Plus, to be in the same place. This allows them to put out what would normally be like a thirty dollar expansion or something mm-hmm. and pull charge full price for it. So <laughs> I assume I assume for people that have all the previous, there's there's like an upgrade that they can get. There must be. I didn't. I didn't look, dig too yeah. deeply into this story. Yeah, they've actually taken some flack for that in the past. They don't always do that. Yeah, they might not be. They might not be doing that. But um, a console game that is coming to PC this week, Forza Horizon Three. Uh, it's going to be, I think, the first in the Forza series to be part of what the new Microsoft was it like Play Anywhere or whatever the initiative. Yes, exactly. Yeah, where it releases on. Windows 10 at the same time. Yeah, yeah, and I think pretty soon to come after that will be like what Gears of War 4 and mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know what else does Microsoft have. That's pretty much it, right? Um, I think Recore. Did you say Recore just now? I did not say Recore. Yeah, Recore just came out. And I, I think that was the first game on that initiative. Okay, and I don't think it was very good, so nobody cares. Yeah, yeah. Um, also coming out this week, NBA NBA 2K17. If that's your bag. Um, is it really called 2K17? It it's is. Not 2017? No, it's well, it's yeah. 2K is the 2K Sports. 2K is right? also the company, so yeah. oh, so they they've always so done dumb. NFL okay. 2K and 2K1, 2K2. Um, also this week, um, you guys heard of Dragon Quest? I have heard. I I liked it better when it was called Dragon Warrior. Yeah, well, that was the fake version. So this this is the actual Dragon Quest. Uh, this is weird. Dragon Quest Seven, you guys. That was originally a PlayStation One game, but it was a PlayStation One game that was released in like two thousand one, I think. Like really late. Like, like really. I, I seem to remember it was very like two, two months before Final Fantasy Ten or something like that. Before the PlayStation Two. It was well into the PS 2s lifespan yeah. that that this game came out, and apparently it had been in development for I don't know years and years and years. Um, and then when it comes out, it's like this like hundred and fifty hour like super epic. Um, I've never actually played Dragon Quest Seven, but I am actually very interested in doing so at some point. Uh, <laughs> um, I think it's actually cool that the that they're re-releasing it, and it's coming out on the 3DS. Um, you know, uh, I, I, I think I have... over the last several years, I think they've redone all the Dragon Quest games to this point. Yeah, in some form or another, a lot of them are going to mobile now. I mean, I played Dragon Quest Eight on mobile. A few yeah, years I think they're almost. I think maybe they are all available on mobile now. Maybe not seven, um, but I'm pretty sure one through five or six, and then eight are definitely on mobile. Nine is still a, a, a DS game, an original DS game, and then ten was like the Wii, Japan, Japan only Wii. Was it Wii? Yeah, Wii and PC MMO. Uh, so anyway, Dragon Quest Seven coming out for 3DS retail and eShop. Um, also on the JRPG 3DS tip is uh, Shin Megami Tensei Four Apocalypse, and so this is sort of like a ex- well, it's kind of like an alternate game version of Shin Megami Tensei Four, which is a couple of years old by now. Yeah, I cannot um, keep all of this stuff straight. Like, I don't know the difference between Persona and SMT and yeah. I don't know what they're even doing. Well, this is the base series, and then this game is kind of like the... 
lightning returns, if you will, of, of the game. <laughs> or, you know, well, I mean, but it's you know, it's not maybe that drastic, right? A like departure. a sequel that's not a. You know. It's like a side quill or something, you know. Right. Um, then we also, and I can't believe this is already coming back again, is Divinity: Original Sin. It seems like. The original was just released like last year or something. Yeah, I think this is early access, though. I don't believe it's a full release. Okay, D- Divinity Original Sin 2. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you may be right, but it, it is available for play, apparently. And then yeah. Cossacks 3. I, I snuck that one in. I really, <laughs> yeah, I'm really <laughs> excited for Cossacks 3. Is it um, from the GSC, um, same guys that made Stalker? Yeah, GSC Game World, the same, same yeah. company. Yeah. Right? Huh. Yeah, the, the original Cossacks one and two so, were but this is, all kinds of weird European game, and they were amazing. What is this? It's like strategy game, or what is it? Yeah, it's a strategy. Um, you build build up your base and your economy chain and your massive amounts of like musket units, and just just gun each other down in the field. It's great. Hmm. Now these games were always very expansive. They had like many nations that had lots of uh, sort of variation between them. Some were you know. Had had stronger navies, some had stronger ground forces or economies, and uh, it is they've always even like the older games were always uh, quite proud of the amount of units that they would have on the field, you know, on the in the game at any given time, um, which you know the total wars have, have kind of matched to a degree. I think they claim up to ten thousand in Cossacks Three, but you know whatever. Wow. Um, but yeah, it's it's I don't know. We'll see. I'm excited. <laughs> Well, that's our new release list for this week. Real good. Well, for the topic of discussion, uh, we kind of mentioned that we sort of tipped our hat a little bit earlier when we talked about the Steam changes to the user review program. And there's actually, it's not actually been as clear-cut a thing as you might expect. I mean, on one hand, you want to say, sure, we want to eliminate the you know bad reviews that are coming from from users or or reviews that may not be completely on the up and up uh turns out it's not really an issue that is devoid of controversy uh so there have been some reactions to this from developers and from users and uh, from individual bloggers and just commentary all around and i thought we'd maybe explore this and kind of see if we have any personal views on this Uh, just to begin with now we do have some references here for for some feedback that has kind of been kicking around on this, but I'm just kind of curious from, from each of you guys, do you have a particular personal slant on this issue? Do you feel like it's a positive step or, or maybe not? Uh, I personally would like to see in, in it's kind of a tricky problem. And I, I know what Valve's trying to get at, but uh, you know, as a consumer, I don't want to like, if I, if I'm using steam reviews, which I, I typically don't, um, to try to judge whether or not I want to spend money on a game. I don't want them clouded with a bunch of people that have essentially gotten it for free, um, which is, I think, primarily what they're trying to stamp out. Not necessarily saying, like, if someone buys it on the Humble Store that they deserve less of a voice, but it's, you know, like their press release or whatever said, they can hand out those keys to whoever, and those people can flood and Oh, they got a free game. It was great. Loved it, you know, that kind of thing. So I, I, I get it. And it actually impacted review scores in interesting ways. Some went up, some went down. It's uh, sort of a fascinating little, this, little this To me, this seems like um, a move that is basically squarely aimed at um, catering to the paying customer of Valve's paying customer. 
And um, I think a lot of the kind of, I don't know, pushback, um, you might call it whining, <laughs> the, about this change is coming from independent developers or just any developer, I guess. Um, but I don't think that it's that, that this change is is for them. Uh, I think they, they maybe take a little bit of collateral damage in the change. Um, but you know, that's, that's how, that's how business works. You got to adapt, right? Uh, this to me looks like valve basically kind of putting themselves in the shoes of their customer thinking the customer is like looking at a game and they want to basically be confident that the, the reviews, or at least the aggregate of the review sort of impressions that, that they roll up into their little summary that says, you know, positive, negative, overwhelmingly positive, that sort of thing. I think that the customer wants to know that the people that contributed to that review were once in their shoes, paid the money, and then got the product and, and evaluated it on on those grounds as opposed to being someone that got a code for free because they promised the developer they would put in a good word or someone that was pre-primed to like the game because they backed it on Kickstarter or someone that got the game free in a humble bundle and thus had like little to no investment in it and you know decides to take a crap on the game with the review for whatever reason you know that it's thinking at it from the side of the the consumer which is the, you know that's the only side i have in this thing i would prefer the that um that ranking there to be emblematic of what the the valve knows that the people that actually that valve knows for sure for certain paid money for that key and approached it with at the same sort of like level playing field of, of any prospective customer. Uh, I would like that to be to reflect those people's opinions on the game as opposed to anyone at large. On on the other hand, though, and kind of looking at, at some of the feedback that's come back, and, and like you said, there are maybe different perspectives on this depending on the, uh, I guess, the background of the developer, but on a Gamasutra, Gamasutra, uh, blog, uh, I think this is a community blog uh, written by Josh Beiser, uh, he sort of indicates that the changes to the Steam reviews perpetuates what he calls a vicious cycle of visibility or discoverability and says that, uh, you know, for, for some companies uh, or for some developers, they basically are um, dealing with discoverability. I mean, it's not necessarily just a, a question of the you know the positive or the negative outlook but just getting noticed to begin with and uh for a lot of indie developers i mean and we you know we talk about this a lot on the show in in some form or another but uh you know the games that are, are smaller and don't have a way of getting noticed and i've seen people in the pr sections uh, sectors of this uh, also kind of comment on this as well it's just difficult for them to even get to a point where there is any visibility and one of the ways that that is possible is through things like humble bundles or um, you know, even through giveaways or other other avenues, I guess. Uh, and, uh, you know, I saw over at uh, Polygon, uh, there's an article there by Allegra Frank, and they 
uh, indicated that over at Steam Spy, they gathered a list of 427 games that had been most affected by the new system, and on a Google spreadsheet, uh, they have games like Simple Ball Extended Edition, which uh, drops to just 14% um, after only seven of its reviews were written people written by people who bought the game through the Steam storefront. Um, the implication, according to her, is that the developers of these titles sent Steam keys to influencers or others who may be more inclined to write a positive review, um, but, uh, you know, past reports going in-depth on the Steam gray market say that keys falsely acquired uh, for, you know, for developers, I mean, they could be done through, um, uh, you know, more nefarious, I guess, means, but I guess one of the questions I have is, you know, is is about that impact. I mean, do we find that there is a problem with games getting inflated review scores? Uh, I mean, I mean, Steam uh, clearly they think that there's something going on there. Yeah, but... they they conducted a review of the data on their end, and you know, who has a better picture of it, right? And they found that yes, that was the case. But but I mean, you mentioned Dale earlier, like this is not for the developers and that it's for the users. But I wonder how much would the users even notice this impact? I mean, I I. I kind of wonder, I mean, my first question is, you know, I realize that, that Valve themselves may have, have looked into this data, but um, is there going to be a discernible impact to me as a user, which, I don't know, it's not really clear that there is, but but there seems to be, based on the fact that uh, for some developers, sometimes the only way that they, I mean, the only way that they're going to be able to get any coverage on it is to have people get, you know, either promotional versions of, of the game. They're not going to be selling it to people to purchase through the Steam store. So what do you do if what you're trying to do is to get well, I think, back on your game? I think first you kind of have to lay out whether or not it is a concern how the, de the developers deal with this, wh whether Valve cares about that at all. Um, second, what... Um, is is it going to matter to the to the end user? Is a good question, and I, I think about this prospect in terms of like preventative maintenance. So ideally, the end user probably wouldn't or or even shouldn't notice that that this change has taken place. However, if the practice of you know shelling out keys for in in a return for good reviews became widespread, then all of a sudden you know you, it would be. You, you could envision like a scenario in, when it, in which it's kind of like common knowledge or it's just endemic that like, oh yeah, you can't trust Steam reviews, they're, especially the ones where it's, they're highly rated. It's all just, right. you know, it's astroturfing, you know. Well, and, and Valve has their own reputation to look after too. I mean, exactly. Got, so, I mean, if you place. get to that point, it's, you know, I mean, you're already, you're already messed up. Whereas, whereas if you maintain the integrity of the review system, it's, um, you know, it's like not something that anybody should really ever notice. It should be sort of seamless, but it's maybe some kind of maintenance that has to be done. So a couple of comments from actual developers. This was over at Rock, Paper, Shotgun. Um, in fact, we mentioned Divinity Original Sin a little bit earlier. Well, actually, the folks over at Larian, uh, Sven Vinky, who uh, ran Kickstarters, I mean, th th their products specifically were Kickstarted. Uh, a lot of people, I guess, who contacted Rock, Paper, Shotgun. Uh, Sven says that uh, these are your most loyal fans and you're cutting them away from the sampling pool, which itself doesn't feel fair. And just as a side note, uh, you know, what, what Valve's actually doing here is specifically taking away people's voices, which 
that's always going to be a problem. Well, that's I, I don't know if I would go that far because like we, we said a little while ago, I mean, those people can still write a re- review and it will still show up on the page. It's just that their um, end rating, the like, you know, thumbs up or thumb down is not figured into the overall aggregate thing. Right. The flip side, though, is I guess what you end up with is kind of the negative effect on the other side where folks who, you know, who, who did buy the game and, and it, you know, it doesn't really take into account things like did they get it on a sale or what were their circumstances, but are you improperly amplifying something on the other end? Um, I, I mean, I think what it kind of boils down to is valve is trying to you know they have a server they they have a service and they feel they have a certain responsibility to their customers through that service and when you go to try to control something maybe it isn't ideal maybe they do wish people that bought this through kickstarter could leave reviews but with kickstarter you aren't guaranteed that you're going to get good reviews either i mean look at mighty number nine which just came out. I mean, that's a good example there of Kickstarter not necessarily guaranteeing you good reviews either. Which is which is funny because I believe, if I recall, some of the first articles uh, I read on this was Mighty Number no. Nine actually saw a boost in its overall percentage based on people that had bought the game on liking Steam it and more played it, than liked it more than, than the people the who had paid into Kickstarter who felt disappointed, probably based on early promises or whatnot. Based so on expectations. It's not that mighty- yeah, well, exactly. So it's not that Mighty Number no. Nine is a terrible game, you know. But I so in, in that it, so. instance, you get but the rating that more expected. reflects what it is than what they right. wanted it to be, which is how reviews should work, right? I mean, anytime, and you know, we have gotten games, uh, you know, press copies uh, for no charge um, for our video streams and whatnot. Um, you know, if any of those ever came along and said, "Here, we'll give you this," and we expect a good review. You know, we probably just wouldn't play it. I mean, we don't really review games anyway. Um, but I never feel obligated to leave positive or negative. And I would want to know if someone is out there, or at least try to minimize how many people are out there putting out positive reviews, regardless of how the actual gameplay, you know, what their actual opinions might be because they got a free copy or because there's some sort of payment scheme. Um, set up to where they leave positive reviews and they get paid for that. So I, I, I like the move by Val. I, I honestly feel like this is one of those things that drummed up a bunch of controversy. And by the Steam Christmas sale, we won't even remember that it happened. <laughs> also, the, honestly. The, the other thing to consider is that this is one of those kind of like maybe sort of ugly compromises where like what else could they have done right it's like there's there might not be a whole lot of like really perfect solutions yeah. to this and they I mean, might have just went with the the best one sure if if there was a way that you could differentiate someone who got a free copy from the publisher or developer versus someone who paid for it on say Amazon or yeah, or, or Kickstarter Humble or store, something like that right who's another paying customer i mean cuz you know they paid their money too but you as far as I know, you can't. When you get those press copies, it just says like retail. It's just a random key copy, right? or something. it's it's either a Steam key that you purchase through the store, or it, it's quote a retail like external key. So maybe as they go forward, they can start to refine that. But that would be the best in the, for things yeah. in the past. I I think it's just what it is, and they just need to move forward. But you know, and if I thing. just real quick, if I was 
if you could take a, like a hard line stance on this, like you might even say that even if it was, a, even if you could verify that the key was paid for through Humble or Walmart or Amazon, wherever it happens to be, that Valve could, you know, probably um, legitimately say, well, you know, all we really need to service are the people that buy through us and still do it the way that they are doing it now. I mean, I don't know that they would do that, but you could make a, a sort of argument for that. Yeah, but then you also got to wonder about the people who are listing on their store. I mean, are you doing a service to those people too? Because, I mean, you do have some responsibility as a storefront to, you know, to provide at least a equitable shelf space, I guess, let's say. I mean, that uh, here, here's something that occurs to me, which is, uh, you know, you mentioned the, the possible other options that they could have done. I mean, it doesn't seem like it would be difficult if they have a way to wholesale cut out that entire segment from the aggregate score. Uh, why not allow a toggle or why not show both and say, you know, Steam verified scores are this, oh, yeah. whereas other scores are that. That's a, that's a good idea. I mean, it just seems like you're taking what could be a theoretical problem and taking a really like severe. Yeah, like a, a really hard. <laughs> but, I, but I think it I think it boils down to this is is you get that kind of stuff on Amazon. You know, the other website you could probably bring to mind that that thrives a lot of off of um, user reviews. You get those sorts sorts of verified purchasers and, and things like that, but I I think you know we, we're pretty in depth and pretty knowledgeable about these things. But I think for probably like ninety percent of Valve's customers, Steam's customers, they don't think to look for that, or they don't notice that, or they don't you know care to spend the time to flip toggles and this and that. So I, I think it's a it's a little you know bit what? of a usability and user friendly move it's if we're going to make this change they just made the change and you know what jeremy affects everybody the, that that idea that you just had my genius idea they've yes. already done that done if you go and look at a Damn. steam page right now there's a toggle there's a radio button you can click that's key activations and if you hover over the the help text it says these are reviews written by customers that received the game from a source outside of steam this may include legitimate sources, blah, 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 or inappropriate sources such so, as So then given... I, then I got to kind of wonder, what is the point of cutting those people out from the aggregate score if you can just filter it? Uh... I think it's maybe the default presentation cuts them out. Yeah, exactly. It's just trying to make it simple for your average user, and they want to provide what they feel is the most accurate review. This is interesting. For them to make that decision power uh, without any fidgeting. Looking at, I'm just on the store page for Bioshock Infinite, right? And you can go down to the the customer review filtering stuff, and you can see purchase type, and you can look at all purchases, and it gives you a, a number here. I guess that's a number of reviews that were written, so it's like fifty five thousand something. Steam purchases is like almost all of that, and then key activations is like seventeen hundred. So of the, it looks like fifty five thousand reviews. No. Wait, oh yeah, okay, all right. I'm looking at some numbers here. I, that's a lot of reviews for a game. <laughs> um, of the 55,000 reviews, um, most of them are, are purchased through Steam, and then there's like 1,700 that are keys here. So like you can you can look at just the Steam purchases or just the key activations or all of them. So I don't know, I guess this discussion is a little bit moot to this point, but it's interesting that they, they must have made that change just in the last few days, right? Yeah, it it just feels a little weird mm. that that they would have those kinds of tools and jump straight to the we're gonna cut everybody out who 
you know, because again, even by the numbers, I mean, there are probably some outliers, and, and I mean, just like Jared mentioned, there are, there are a few games that increased. Mighty Number no. 9 was one, Sports Friends was one, Citizens of Earth. Uh, yeah, they all seem to have done better, so I, I think there are probably those edge cases. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I definitely see how it could be considered kind of a troublesome decision for, for those who kind of rely on alternate distribution methods other than Steam Store purchasing, because it's like a chicken-egg problem, you know? How can you get more momentum for your game if you can't... if they're taking away the mechanism for you to try and get word out, you know, whether it's positive or negative, either way. I mean, it's basically just cutting out that as, a, as an avenue for people to get that um, coverage, I guess. More Moral of the story, don't make video games. Yeah, I think that's that's probably the moral of every... And especially every don't whine about it if you do. Yeah, right. Well, we saw how that turns out, too. Well, listeners, uh, I just want to let all of you know, whether you got this through your iTunes feed, whether you got it through your RSS, your podcast app of choice, or listen to it straight from our website, your reviews are counted in our hearts. In fact, if you'd like to give those to us directly, you can reach out to us on Twitter and give those to us as a group. We are at Game Byte Show. You can also reach out to us individually. I am at Jeremy underscore Lamont. I'm at Count Elmbo. And I'm at Red underscore I. Absent from the show is Legrand Jolly at Legrand, L-E-G-R-A-N-D-E. He's uh, traveling, and hopefully he does so safely and uh, having lots of fun, so good luck to him out there. Uh, we will be back at the middle of the week to talk to you about the video games that we've been playing, but you may want to check out our video game streams. You uh, may or may not know that we actually have a Twitch.tv page over at Twitch.tv slash Show where we will at least once a week do a demonstration of uh, a nice, cool video game a lot of times Jared and I will do that. We actually just wrapped up on a game of Duelist, which uh, you may have missed that one, but you can check that out over at our YouTube archive, youtube.com slash GameBiteShow. Um, you can check all this stuff out at our website, GameBiteShow.com, and uh, there you can see our feeds to subscribe to the podcast. You can see our video feeds there as well, and uh, you may subscribe to us over at uh, twitch.tv or at YouTube, and uh, we'd certainly love to see you at those events as well. Uh, Jared, I feel like I should turn it over to you to talk about our Extra Life events that are going on. Yeah, let's do it. We're going to wrap this in like 47 seconds. Okay, <laughs> so Extra Life, uh, this year we have a team. We had a team last year. You should join our team. It's free. Extra Life is an awesome charity for Children's Miracle Network. You get to choose a hospital of your choice if you sign up and raise money from family and friends. They donate right to you on your page and it goes 100% straight to the hospital that you chose to help those kids in need. Uh, or if you don't want to commit to joining our team and playing video games for kids, you can help them anyway by just donating to uh, any of our team members. So I know right now myself, I am on the team and Wesley Levisay, a friend of the podcast is, has uh, a page up as well. So go check that out. Extra-life.org slash team slash uh, game bite show. I forgot who we are for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, uh, until the next time this has been your Game Bite Show, we'll see you at the middle of the week to talk to you about the games we've been playing. We enjoy having you here, and we'll see you next time. Peace. Bye. Bye.